Welcome to The Buyer's Desk, an infra podcast. We'll guide you through quick snapshots on infra trends and insights, interviews with member store buyers and brand founders, and we have curated segments from infra staff. Hey, folks, and thanks for joining us on another episode of The Buyer's Desk. I am Chris Sorensen, Promotions Program Manager. And I am Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs, and we are your hosts. And we're back with another episode focused on another certification, and hopefully we can clear up some of the confusion around this one uh, in honor of World Fair Trade Day, which, what, I think it's May 13th this year, and our theme focuses on the various aspects of fair trade, the certification itself, the multitude of certifying bodies. We kind of dig into that. We also talk about the producer community, so we hear that from uh, the interview I actually have coming up later in the show with Manish Gupta of Mater Bumi, and I'm really excited to highlight a general merchandise brand on the podcast. You know, we've done a lot of grocery, a lot of wellness, but general merchandise, which is, is really fun, so it's Good to uh, let Manish tell his story, how the brand came about and whatnot. But Angela, what do you got coming up on the episode? Well, another episode of me singing Jim Olson's praises. In just three efficient minutes, he breaks down the most popular fair trade crops and highlights brands. So, you know, always excited to hear from him. He does such a great job with his segment. And then I had the pleasure of speaking to Emily Cantor from Cambridge Naturals in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, she broke down their buying philosophies, but I think our interview is really particularly fascinating as she kind of talked about how they train their staff and then what kind of things customers say to their staff. So kind of like where we can focus around talking to people about certifications and what they care about and where they spend their money. So I really enjoyed that talk with her and excited for you guys to hear it later in the episode. But first... We're going to hear from Noel at Tony's Chocolonely and the work they're doing on fair trade to end the exploitation in the cocoa industry. Hi there, I'm Noel, digital communication specialist for Tony's Chocolonely US. At Tony's, we make incredibly tasty chocolate on a mission to end exploitation in the cocoa industry. Right now, there are 1.56 million cases of child labor in the cocoa industry in West Africa alone. The root cause? Poverty. We address exploitation in cocoa like child labor with Tony's Chocolonely's five sourcing principles, traceable cocoa beans, creating long-term relationships with cocoa farmers, focusing on quality of crops and productivity of farms, working with strong cocoa farming cooperatives, and finally paying a higher price. Not only is Tony's Chocolonely proudly fair trade certified, at Tony's we pay a fair trade premium on top of the standard price for cocoa. And on top of that, we pay an additional Tony's premium to make sure we enable every cocoa farmer to earn a living income. Poverty is widespread in the cocoa industry and it's the root cause of exploitation like child labor. Together, we can address poverty and end exploitation in the cocoa industry. Join us and make impact with every delicious chocolatey bite. Are you in? Learn more at Tony'sChocolateOnly.com. Hello. I'm Jim Olson, SPIN's Retail Insights Manager for Infra, here with a rundown of what's happening on the data side of the natural foods industry. With a name like Natural and Organic Foods, it's easy to assume our industry's focus is solely on the ingredient content of products. However, with World Fair Trade Day occurring on May 13th, it's just as important to focus on the source of those natural ingredients and ensuring farmers, laborers, and ingredient communities are paid fairly for the role they play in the natural products created and sold. As the industry leader in natural product research, SPINS has long tracked the progression and adoption of fair trade products and certifications. And as a proud long-term partner, SPINS has tracked the performance and success of infra as an aggregate and in relation to industry-specific elements. In this age of inflation, one might assume specialty items like fair trade products may be especially susceptible to price point volatility seen elsewhere. However, SPIN's data has shown that fair trade product sales at Infra are faring surprisingly well. For the most recent 52-week period, Infra fair trade sales were almost equal to their non-fair trade sales, right around 1%. A significant contributor to the steadiness may be attributed to average retail price for fair trade products, around a 5% increase for Infra compared to the 7% price increase seen elsewhere in the natural channel. For further analysis, I turned to three of the most common categories associated with fair trade products, candy, coffee, and tea. 
These three categories account for 46% of all fair trade sales at Infra, with candy alone accounting for 31% of all fair trade sales at Infra. Needless to say, these categories were excellent indicators of fair trade trends. Using SPINS data, I discovered that these three fair trade aligned categories have remained resilient in the face of inflationary pressures. Fair trade candy, coffee, and tea all showed growth rates between 2 to 4% at Infra, almost equal to their non fair trade counterparts. When analyzing average retail price, both fair trade candy and fair trade tea items had price increases equal to their non fair trade counterparts. Most notably, fair trade coffee items at Infra had an average retail price increase of 7%, while non-fair trade coffee had prices rise nearly 15%. It's fair to say fair trade products remain popular with Infra shoppers and have been able to withstand recent economic headwinds despite their specialty status. For those of us inside the industry and those customers supporting us with their shopping dollars, it's imperative to center our attention not just on ingredient composition, but also on ingredient sources, ensuring those who work hard to provide our ingredients are respected, supported, and compensated for the integral role they play in moving our industry forward. I wish you all a great spring, and I'll see you at the show. Hi, I'm here with Emily Cantor, Infra Board Chair and Second Generation Co-Owner of Cambridge Naturals in Cambridge and Brighton, Massachusetts. How's it going today, Emily? It's going really well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, actually, let's just kick this off. Would you, would you mind telling me a little bit about your store, Cambridge Naturals? Sure. Um, so we were founded in 1974 um, by my parents, Michael and Elizabeth. They were just 23 years old at the time. And from the beginning, my parents' worldview has really been that food is political, you know, growing organically, growing sustainably, growing locally. All these things have an impact on our broader society, um, both locally and globally. And so running a healthy food retail store, providing organic healthy food to their local community was one part of their effort to make a better society for all. I grew up in the store working as a teenager and in college. And then I explored several different career paths along the way in my early to mid 20s. Um, and then in 2014, after getting my MBA, my husband, Caleb, and I moved back into the Boston area to help them run the business and eventually transition out. That was awesome. And in fact, you gave me the perfect segue to kind of kick off our conversation about fair trade. Um, the belief that your family had that food is political, I imagine that there is a part of that that kind of plays into overall like fair trade and what it means for your store and like how you think about that in reference. So um, if we could just start there, that would be perfect. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the fair trade certification has been around a long time as far as food certifications go. And I believe that it is one pretty essential tool to ensure that the food that we're eating on a regular basis was grown, harvested, processed by people who have been paid a fair wage and treated with dignity and respect. I think that we can all agree, you know, across the political spectrum that treating people fairly should be a baseline for consumption, you know, that we're not unintentionally harming others by eating, eating certain foods. And, you know, when food, especially when food is coming from thousands and thousands of miles away and you can't just drive up to the farm stand and meet the farmer and see the farm workers, that fair trade certification is just one really important standard to ensure that those practices are being followed and, you know, that you're eating as ethically as possible. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. You did mention certification, but certification kind of lowercase c. Are there specific certifications out there that you look for? Um, are there any differences for you in terms of the certifying bodies? Or if, you know, if I came to you and said, Emily, I really feel passionately about fair trade certified fill in the blank, like what, what advice would you give me? Sure. Um, you know, we're we're really big fans of certified organic, for example, and have been, you know, from the very early days when it was just becoming a certification in its in its nascent stage. You know, nowadays there's more of a consumer focus around non-GMO, which is a very important certification. I mean, GMOs are really creepy in many ways, but just because something is non-GMO certified doesn't mean that they're not liberally spraying the crops and the soil with pesticides. So I believe and it is our, you know, internal belief within Cambridge Naturals that certified organic is still a much higher standard and something we should be aiming for across the board because you're really, um, you know, it's still the gold 
gold standard for soil practices, for growing practices. And it's not only about the the way the food is grown and then consumed, but also who's growing the food and how, you know, what they're being exposed to in the growing process. So, so certified organic is super important to us. You know, we're also really excited about the rising uh, attention to certified regenerative organic. And I think that that is going to be the next big thing. Um, definitely seeing a lot more companies focusing on regenerative organic and You know, that really means that they're focusing not only just on the non-use of pesticides, but also really on the soil health and the sequestering carbon in the soil and all of those things that matter for long-term planetary and food system health. You know, literally the supply of food that we all eat relies upon healthy soil. So organic is super exciting. And then we also look at things like biodynamic, MSC certified, you know, for fish, just all of these kind of baseline standards, frankly, to ensure that our food is grown, harvested, processed in the most ethical and sustainable way possible. And I know sustainable is a word that kind of gets, you know, tossed around and and has lost a bit of its meaning. But ultimately, I think what we're talking about is just the survival of the human race on this planet and, um, you know, the survival of, of all beings, if possible. And in order to do that, we need to ensure that we have a healthy and sustainable food system, um, and that is going to take a multi-prong approach. These certifications just allow us to put that rigor into it. And again, because we have such a global food system and even you know industrialized in this country, it's really hard to know where your food is coming from. So those certifications provide that baseline standard. Oh, absolutely. And so I feel like that is it is a little bit different, and please correct me if you disagree, in the realm of fair trade. I remember feeling like there are a few different certifying bodies in fair trade. I remember getting a lot of education from our partners at Equal Exchange about what that can look like. And then I also remember, you know, in my retail days, having some coffee companies that kind of did their own thing with what they would call like a relationship um, standard or, you know, like we can tell the story. We've gone directly to this co-op and, you know, you're obviously putting some trust in a coffee roaster at that point. But I'm wondering if there are, you know, if how you vet that, like, you know, what you feel about just having a kind of a, a bigger spectrum around fair trade and certification. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, again, fair trade is is a baseline. And I think you can you can kind of go up from there and even maybe you can go a little bit adjacent. I think direct trade, as you're discussing, is one of those things that coffee companies in in particular. And I'm and in this case, I'm talking about, you know, small coffee companies that really, truly can build one on one relationships with coffee growers, you know, not big coffee chains or conglomerates that might certainly try to do that, but it is, they're just, they're sourcing so many thousands of pounds of coffee, millions of pounds of coffee every year that it's really probably hard to maintain direct one-on-one relationships. So coffee roasters locally that can do that, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, certainly I think we can put some amount of trust in those companies, especially if we can walk into their stores or their roasteries and have those conversations. You know, there's always a bit of a leap of faith with any certification. And certainly there have been abuses within any certification. I know that, you know, not every fair trade certifying company or or organization does things the same way, you know, maybe has the same standards. So we can have a healthy level of skepticism and work to make these certifications stronger. But I do think that it is it's one way of just ensuring that, you know, for example, bananas are coming, you know, to this country and bananas have been a crop that historically the workers have been treated appallingly. So knowing that those are fair trade certified bananas, as I think Equal Exchange has been involved in, ensures that you are getting, you know, a a healthy banana that was grown by people who were treated appropriately treated fairly and and given a fair wage. Um, So, yeah, it's not a panacea. And I think there's lots of room for, as I said, you know, shopping locally and going to the farm stand down the street. They don't have to be certified fair trade or even certified organic for you to have a conversation with them about their growing practices and their worker treatment practices. I know you guys at Cambridge Naturals have like a really great staff and that in terms of taking care of that staff, there's a piece of, you know, educating your customers. You have a big wellness set. So there's a lot to be said to customers. Um, I guess I'm kind of curious on the fair trade front, um, what kind of staff education um, you've seen or has provided or have you 
had staff that have had really interesting in-depth conversations with consumers about fair trade or, you know, kind of anything about your staff and the consumer and fair trade that would be fun to share? Sure. I I think that staff education is paramount. I think that with any um, certification, we have to do a good job of educating our teams. And actually having this conversation is probably is reminding me that we probably need to do more um, education specifically around some of these labels and, and investigate them internally again, because we have a whole new crop of staff, you know, coming out of the pandemic who, you know, haven't worked in our industry before. It's so important that we talk about labeling in the aisles because often customers aren't familiar with fair trade or organic or, you know, any of these certifications. They may have heard of them, but they may not know kind of what goes into them. And helping them decipher those labels is really important, especially why they may be paying a premium for something that they would expect to be cheaper. And, you know, also, I think that consumption is such a important part of our society. You know, it's essential to our economy. And so just making sure that we're treating every purchase as something special and important. Um, And so, you know, having those conversations in the aisle and really enlightening our customers about why why fair trade is important, why certified organic is important, why regenerative organic is important, makes it a more meaningful transaction and allows them to leave feeling really good about the purchase that they made, that they were supporting someone else's livelihood or someone else's well-being in the practice. Oh, I love that. I agree that it is complicated. And I think that there is no end to kind of figuring out where staff is curious, where consumers are curious and where people can fill in the gaps, especially on an issue like fair trade, which I think we've actually done a really good job covering its complications and value in this conversation. Just to wrap it up, Emily, was there anything else you would you would want our listeners to know about you or Cambridge Naturals or fair trade or any of the above? I think just, you know, shopping local and independent is one really important way that you can contribute to a healthier local economy and your local community's well-being. So shop at infra stores and support infra stores and, you know, infra stores, we need to do the best job possible of communicating our value to our customers. And that includes educating them on labels like fair trade and organic and other certifications. Absolutely. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure to talk to you and I actually hope to have you back on the podcast another time. Thank you again. I would love to. Thank you. Hey, Angela, I really love that interview with Emily. One of the things she said kind of early on in the interview is when she's talking about fair trade, you know, she talks about not just fair treatment, but treating people with dignity and respect. Just interesting way to look at it is that we think about fair as fairness, but treating people with dignity, respect is kind of beyond that. So I I thought that was an interesting way of framing up the certification. Oh, well, and absolutely. And now that you say that, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only parent you know, thinking about this, it's like fair is a really challenging word, right? Like uh-huh. it, it means not great, not poor, kind of in the middle. And in the way that we're trying to use it in these instances is like, well, what is what is fair? And I think that is a fascinating question, especially in a landscape where we have multiple certifying bodies. And one of the things that I thought was great about Emily's interview was we kind of dove into what does it mean to have a partner? What does it mean to, and I think I used coffee as the example, Yeah. but what does it mean to have a coffee roaster who says like, no, no, I have a relationship with this farm. I am paying them above fair wage, whatever we're going to call that. And, 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 you know, if they embody, I love the dignity and respect. Those are great words for this. They're better words for this. Right. right. Um, and I just, I also, there was a part of Emily's interview where I just really like struck home to me that like all of these things, certifications, relationships, partnerships, they all require both the buyer and the consumer to trust, right? You got to trust the certification. You got to trust the person selling you the product. You have to trust that those people on the other side are being treated with dignity and respect. Yeah, I agree. And Matt kind of frames this up in retail talk coming up, but I think it's that when you don't have access to that farmer. So some people you have the relationship with your farmer or your distributor or the brand directly. And so there is some trust there, but when you don't have the proximity, you know, it's these certifications like fair trade that you have to trust and rely on in order to know that someone else is vetting and doing this work too. So yeah, I think it is an interesting conversation of, you know, is the certification the be all end all or, you know, where does local fit into this and where do the smaller producers and smaller farmers that maybe aren't there yet or can't afford it. So yeah, that's fascinating. 
I do I say this every episode that it is basically just part of the buying job when you think about diversification of products on your shelf and you think about certifications and partnerships and relationships and all of that, that like in order to be a buyer, you have to have a little bit of a tolerance for complexity. Um, I think as a shopper, you have to have a little bit of a tolerance for complexity if you're trying really hard to spend your money in good places. And I actually love that you kind of segued back to the retail talk conversation that's coming up with you and Fairtrade America and Matt Olson having both the certifying body on the call, but also having someone who's been buying produce for most of their career, right? Yeah, no, I, I'm really excited for that because, yeah, we do have Amanda, the new executive director of Fairtrade America on Retail Talk, which was great because Matt and Lauren from the import purchasing team were on as well. And we got to ask her questions. And I think all of us actually learned something throughout that conversation. So what I'm really hoping is that people take away at least one thing that they didn't know about Fairtrade before this episode. That's actually a new thing that they can now carry with them and, and talk about with Fairtrade. So let's get into that. But first, we're going to hear from River at Equal Exchange, the oldest fair trade food company in the United States, and the great work they're doing around fair trade. Hi, this is River Cook, and I'm just one of 100 worker owners at the oldest fair trade food company in the United States, Equal Exchange. For over 36 years, Equal Exchange has partnered with small scale, democratically organized farmer cooperatives that grow the coffee, tea, cacao, and bananas we put into our fairly traded products. Equal Exchange practices authentic fair trade to raise and stabilize small-scale farmers' incomes and to increase the organizational and commercial capacities of small-scale farmers and their cooperatives. These farmers and their producer groups make farming sustainable and safe for everyone and everything that relies on the land. After four decades in business, Equal Exchange worker owners know that democracy in business practices and true fair trade create value all along the supply chain. Learn more at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. Hey folks, you are in for a treat with our retail talk segment on fair trade. We have a special guest from Fair Trade America to join my conversation with Infra staff today. I'd like to welcome Amanda Archila, Executive Director of Fair Trade America, Matt Olson, Fresh Program Manager at Infra and Lauren Bartell, Wellness Category Manager at Infra. Hey folks, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks everyone. Yeah, thanks, excited to be here. Looking forward to the talk. Excellent. Um, well, with various fair trade certifications out in the wild, it can be very difficult for customers to know what to trust. That opens the door for the term fair trade to easily be misunderstood or mistrusted based on one's experience. So Amanda, I'm gonna start this conversation out with you. From your experience as a certifier in a space where there are many different certifications, do you find having all of these different certifications as a benefit to the fair trade as a concept or does it detract from it? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a great question to open with and because the issues we're trying to tackle, poverty, exploitation in agricultural communities, they've been around for hundreds of years. And fair trade certification in particular came out of a pretty broad, multifaceted movement for trade justice with the goal to prioritize and work alongside farmers and workers most affected by these kinds of structural inequities. Things are getting ever more complex with issues like climate change and the pandemic. So from our vantage point, we need as many people as we can get across the supply chain actively choosing a new way of doing business from what's in your food to how people behind your food are treated to the impact it has on the planet. Certifications, one important kind of tool in the toolbox to create a fairer and more sustainable food system. Inevitably, that means you're going to have different theories of change and, and thus different certifications. And I don't really see that as an inherent detractor to the core principles and values of fair trade. There's certainly a reason I chose to work for Fair Trade America in terms of my alignment, you know, with, with the theory of change. But I don't think we need to have a monopoly on theories of change. Awesome. Well, hey, Lauren and Matt, um, from, from your position, both managing categories, both in wellness and produce, how have you guys run into the multiple certifications scenario? You know, I would say that for the wellness departments, fair trade certifications are really limited to certain certain categories of general merchandise and gift and body care. And so, you know, when we're looking at a specific sort of subcategory like shea butter, we always want to have at least one fair trade certified product. I wouldn't say that we're super picky about what that is because sometimes our options are really limited. 
same thing, you know, if you're looking at jewelry or you're looking at textiles, you know, I, I think there are some basic categories where you always want to make sure you have fair trade options, but your options in terms of what you're aware of may be somewhat limited. And so, you know, the more awareness that we can bring and the more exposure to fair trade certified companies, brands that are using fair trade certified products and ingredients, we can bring, you know, from infra to our members, the better, because I think that's, that can be really tough to find the right brands to work with as a retailer. Yeah. And in the produce realm, I mean, the big, the big items are bananas and in the last few years, um, avocados. And, you know, there's a lot of, in my experience, I guess fair washing would be is, is the term, but you know, there's some almost like private label or, uh, larger chains that purport to carry, you know, fair trade bananas. But when you start to dig into it, it's, they're not as, uh, there's a lot of aspects of them that do not mesh with the fair trade ideology as it were. So finding that, you know, the fair trade America label is super critical, I think, to just that transparency and that connection with those products. Thanks, Matt. So that makes me think too, that we, you know, we've talked about regenerative organic certified a lot on this podcast. So man, I want to ask like, how do you think fair trade adjacent certifications like the ROC that make use of fair trade principles like farmer treatment, animal welfare, and fair pay, how do you see that impacting fair trade certifications? I think people and planet and the certifications you see that are, you know, driven such as regenerative organic certified by, you know, focusing on the environment and land um, are inextricably linked. And so we see this in our own fair trade standards. You know, we cover economic, social and environmental aspects and we acknowledge this intersectionality and kind of use our position to encourage things like organic, like regenerative practices through higher minimum prices, investments and premiums. So I, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. These certifications can be complementary and part of this larger ecosystem for positive change. Though, you know, reaffirming kind of what Lauren and Matt were talking about, there's obviously challenges around authenticity and integrity of some of these claims. And so it's really important that we be part of an ecosystem that focuses on robust, you know, third-party verification, some of those core standards that aren't just about telling a story of values, but are really backing it up with the due diligence required to, you know, carry the, uh, carry the integrity of, of the mark. So it's really important. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess the, the way you frame that, I never thought of it that way of even layering these certifications allows a brand to, to tell the consumer, like, we've worked with this third party company, this third party company, and this third party company to all certify kind of a similar thing, but really just making sure it's layered covers a broader range potentially. So it does show integrity. So that's, that's interesting. Matt, I want to look at things from kind of the produce perspective and want to ask you, like, what is it really important for produce buyers to consider with fair trade items? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, ultimately the pricing is a big concern in the produce world. So bananas is a great example. There's that you know, kind of throughout the industry, this 99 cent price point that a lot of folks are afraid to go above, um, that, you know, there need to be competitive, especially the independent retailers. And my experience before Infra, I was with a co-op here in the Twin Cities, and we had very robust conversations around this component of raising our banana price from 99 cents to $1.19 a pound. And we eventually made the decision to go that route and we did not see a dip in sales. We got really no negative feedback around it. But the key to that was that communication and, you know, Equal Exchange, th those are the fair trade bananas that I'm referencing here. They have just wonderful resources for farmer profiles, for point of sale materials. So really it's just about creating that connection with a community, whether, you know, it's kind of like the local, but far away. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Amanda, what's, what's your take on the, the banana pricing situation? Yeah. I, every time I think about bananas, I always think about, you know, the unfortunate fact that it costs, it always costs less to get a bunch of bananas that travel thousands of miles than it costs to get apples that were grown a few blocks down the road. And it really begs the question of who's actually pulling for your bananas. You know, when, when they come to the U.S., they're usually grown on large-scale farming operations in Latin America and the Caribbean. They rely on hired labor to function. And there are tremendous issues in the industry around workers' rights, around climate change and climate resilience. 
And so making sure that we're choosing bananas where workers are being treated well and have the ability to organize along with increasing climate resilience within these communities is super critical. But I absolutely agree with Matt that it comes with a requirement to educate consumers and really to make sure that consumers are asking themselves the question of why, why does this actually cost 99 cents? Yeah, it's kind of like, in my mind, just fighting against that false reality of being able to have a perfectly ripe banana 365 days a year at, you know, 99 cents or even 69 cents or whatever it is, you know, that's just not a sustainable situation that supports the workers and the farmers or anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. The interesting thing that also is presented with bananas, though, is because it's such a universal product that, you know, brings people in the store and you have to have it. It's also a really interesting kind of gateway opportunity to introduce people to what does it mean to actually shop responsibly and understand the impact of your purchasing on on the livelihoods of farmers and workers. So I want to spin this a little bit. So later in this episode, we're going to hear from Manish Gupta from Mater Bhumi. And so I want to focus this one mainly on general merchandise. So Lauren, specifically in that realm, what have you noticed with fair trade certifications and maybe things that need to be cleared up? Yeah. Um, so I, like I think I mentioned, I, I tend to see fair trade certifications of very specific types of items, which is great. You know, I think it's been easier to find fair trade certified gift items and brands recently, which is so exciting. But I know that it can be really confusing because I've been in a, you know, retailer position because you see fair trade certifications. You see GOTS, which is the Global Organic Textile Standard Certifications, which does have a tenet of social responsibility. Um, you see brands that are claiming fair trade compliance. You see brands that are using ingredients sourced from women's cooperatives or cooperative villages or collectives. And it can be really hard to make sense of all of that and what is meaningful and what is the fair washing that we talked about earlier. So I would love, I would love your take on that, Amanda. Yeah. I mean, you know, so when you think about sort of the full universe of certifiable products with fair trade, I mean, we certify over 300 commodities. So some of those things, right, like shea butter or cocoa butter, coconut, et cetera, we certify. But there's a lot that we still don't. And, and part of that is because every one of those 300 commodities requires intentionality, expertise, research with significant farmer engagement. And so we add commodities, obviously, through this kind of robust process as needs arise. But not everything can be. And in those situations, you know, I think we find allyship with other organizations, you know, especially when we think about artisan goods, right, with Fair Trade Federation that share kind of fair trade values. But for things that can be certified and maybe aren't, right, and kind of are telling the story, I think it is worth digging in and kind of understanding what the blockers are. When it comes to actually carrying the mark, that has both impact in terms of consumer education. It also has impact, real financial impact in terms of producer networks. So the licensing fees that company pays to carry the certification mark, a portion of that goes straight back into producer network work, a lot of which is, is actually on climate resilience, particularly at some key projects. And so, you know, sometimes there is this reticence of, oh, I you know, want to be fair trade compliant, but not carrying the certification. I think it's worth as buyers and as retailers kind of probing in on what the blockers are so that you can understand, okay, is this, you know, is the story being told on the packaging one that's really consistent with the work that's being done by fair trade? And and what are the real reasons for not carrying the, the mark? Because that is actually critical to the functioning of, of the full ecosystem here. So Lauren, you and I had chatted uh, prior to this and you posed this question, but I'm going to ask this to Amanda too, just because I think it's interesting. Are there specific priority countries of origin or products that we should be looking to source fair trade that maybe aren't the, the, you know, the cocoa, the coffee, the bananas, the things that everyone thinks of with fair trade. And maybe even beyond that, like what's the future of fair trade? What is Fair Trade America looking uh, maybe to penetrate other categories or departments or things like that in the future? Yeah. I mean, the, the one headline I'll give that I think is relevant is that right now there is actually more supply of fair trade ingredients out there than there is demand. So producers across commodities are producing these kinds of goods on fair trade terms, and there are not enough brands, manufacturers, traders that are buying on fair trade terms. So across the board, we have an opportunity to be leveraging the hard work and dedication that producers have been committing to on the ground. And so you know, there's there's just endless opportunity for brands and manufacturers and partners and retailers to be 
boosting the growth of fair trade, even within those core commodities. But like I said, we have over 300 commodities. So there's there's a ton of really interesting work, I think, being done. I think produce is super underpenetrated in the United States in particular. And I think it's a real area for growth, whether that's bananas or avocados or you know, other tropical fruits. So I think there's a ton of opportunity. I wouldn't even restrict it to coffee and chocolate. Like we're not even there yet by any means. We still have a ton of work to do. And like I said earlier, you know, the supply is so material. The challenges in those commodities are so material and there's still a ton of supply and a ton of opportunity. So I would focus on those core, but also I think it's exciting to think about the other commodities that provide more points of communication on shelves for customers to tell the story of fair trade. So I have a follow-up question because I know we have some brands and some brokers and, you know, a lot of, there's a wide group of people in the industry that listen to this podcast. So if you're a brand and you're interested in switching over to use a fair trade ingredient, what's like, what's your best route to do that? Do you reach out to Fair Trade America? Yeah, I didn't pay you to ask that question, but I should have. It's the perfect question to ask. It is sort of, <laughs> it, I mean, we, it, it's, it's really to pick up the phone and call us. Yeah, we are, you know, the U.S. representative of the international organization to help with the whole process of certification, of looking at your supply chain, of seeing where there are other sourcing opportunities. So you can go to our website, fairtradeamerica.org. We have a get started form that you can fill out. We have a number that our team answers. So and you can find us at a lot of obviously different trade shows and events. And so, yeah, find us uh, online via phone in person. And we are absolutely the first step to understanding where you could be sourcing more fair trade. Well, that's great. And I think that's great information for buyers, too, at our stores, because, you know, when you're a buyer and you're meeting with a brand and you see a, a product you like, but it doesn't have that certification, that's nice to know, you know, you can recommend to the brand, this is what you need to do. Because so often you'll say to the brand, we'd like to see that certification. They say, oh, well, you know, we don't really know how or, oh, we kind of checked that out. But but to be able to say, you know, really concretely, here's your next step. Come back to me when you've done this. I welcome everyone to say, please call Amanda at Fairtrade America. She will will take your call and I will, you know, pass you off to the to the right folks on our team who can help. Excellent. Well, I appreciate all three of you being on the show. This was a very enlightening conversation. I learned so much from from both of you guys, so I hope our listeners do as well. So thanks again, Amanda, Matt, and Lauren for this discussion on fair trade. And thanks for being on the show. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. There was so much to take away from that interview, but the one big thing I just want to make sure all of our buyers heard was that there are more goods than there are products right now on the market. So if you're a buyer and you're thinking to yourself, I really need to round out this category with something else that is fair trade, it is perfectly reasonable for you to connect a a prospective vendor to Amanda or somebody else at Fair Trade America to help them navigate that. And I was both astounded and also thought like, what a phenomenal resource. Like, I'm so glad she like threw in that plug. And I'm so glad that Lauren like asked her, like, what can we do? That feels like such a great concrete thing to do. Yeah, I I was actually fascinated by how she responded and said, call me. I'll direct you to the right people. Let's make it happen. I think that's great. And yeah, I, I learned so much through that. I'm glad you had a takeaway, Angela, and I hope everyone did from that. But yeah, going into our interview with Manish Gupta at Mater Bhumi. He's a former board member of the Fair Trade Federation, which is also fascinating that he has that perspective. And I'm so inspired by his story. It's just great to hear the impact that he's had on these consumer communities in India. But that kind of work doesn't go without challenges. I asked him about some of the challenges. So let's get into that interview. But first, we're going to hear from Amber, the president and founder of In Essence Aromatic Botanicals and the great work they're doing around fair trade. Greetings, beautiful people. I'm Amber, the president and founder of In Essence Aromatic Botanicals, a woman-owned natural body care company based in Southern Oregon. In celebration of World Fair Trade Day, it's a great opportunity to acknowledge those preserving their indigenous traditions so that we can offer some of these amazing products to you. We are one of the first certified organic body care companies using fair trade ingredients since 2008. For us, it's built into our mission of being a force for good in our local as well as global communities. Every product we create is special. However, we have a deep love for shea butter and have been using it in our formulation since day one. For this, we've partnered with the Baraka Impact Group, a Ghanaian supplier committed to building community and empowering the women who make these products. The purchase of our shea butter directly supports educational costs for girls in rural Ghana, contributes capital for local micro lending projects, 
and educates communities on sustainable and regenerative cultivation techniques, just to name a few. We invite you to visit us on our website, www.inessence.com or our social channels at Inessence to learn more. I'm excited to welcome Manish Gupta, founder and CEO of Mater Bhumi to the buyer's desk. Hey Manish, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Great to speak with you today. Yeah, likewise. Well, when we spoke on the phone the other day, you mentioned that you always thought you'd be a chemical engineer one day. And now you're the founder and CEO of a lifestyle and sustainable products brand, which makes me wonder what sets you on that path where you are today. And is chemical engineer maybe still in your future? I'm, I'm laughing a little bit. So, you know, I come from, a, my family has a bunch of engineers. My, my dad was a chemical engineer. Uh, my sister is an engineer. Growing up, I always thought that me and my dad would, you know, set up a chemical industrial plant. And that's why I took up chemical engineering and I was all set to, to go on that path. And I took up a job with, uh, with Dell Computers, learning logistics. And at that time, I got exposed to the idea of handmade goods as a business proposition. And I went to a trade show and it seemed like a good business idea. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I wanted to explore that. What I did was then I took some time off from my job at Dell and I, sta I started traveling in India and meeting a lot of artisans. So I grew up in a fairly, you know, decent sized town in India. I knew that there were a lot of artisans around, but I had never been to the villages where artisans actually lived and produced products. And I never really understood what their socioeconomic dynamics are. So, you know, as I started traveling, I met a lot of artisans and I remember specifically going to this artisan's home and he was a, a weaver. He, he, you know, created beautiful fabrics. And I went to his house and he was in, you know, I think in his 60s and he had a thick, you know, you know, thick glasses on and he was making this beautiful fabric. But he seemed, he didn't have energy, enthusiasm. And I asked him, like, how is he doing? He said he's not able to sell his beautiful fabric. And he was an award-winning artisan. His, you know, father and forefathers had all been, you know, this esteemed artisan in the village who made the most beautiful fabric. But, at, at, you know, in today's day and time, he said, nobody wants to buy my fabric. Everybody wants to buy mass-produced, brighter, cheaper fabrics. I'm not able to create sustainability for my family and I want to give up this art form and I don't want my kids to take this art form. And he said most of the young people in his village are leaving the village. They're going to towns and they end up in slums. And to me, that was a shock because I thought, you know, this beautiful, sustainable way of life is going away and everybody is going to cities and living in slums. And I thought that was, that was a huge loss. So that is when the social aspect of the business came to me. So I was, you know, initially looking at, it purely from a financial business standpoint. And then, you know, my travels brought me to the, you know, brought on the social aspect. And, and I thought, you know, I want to start a business and these artisans need a trading partner. So I, I thought I'll give it a shot. So that is when I started the company. I started traveling, found a lot of artisan communities, brought samples along with me and started to to do the business. So that was in 2005. And now we work with about 1000 artisans in India, across 40 different artisan communities in 12 different states. So what we essentially do is we find these communities that have beautiful art form, but they don't have a way to market their products. A lot of them, you know, don't know the right styles, or they don't have the right colors, or they have challenges on quality or sustainability. So we have set up our own team in India. So our team works very closely with these artisans and we understand what their challenges are, help them overcome those challenges. So for example, we work with a women's group that makes beautiful fabric, but they didn't know how to stitch a bag with it. And, you know, you can't sell a poor quality bag, however beautiful the fabric is. So we would then train the women how to stitch the bag properly or you know, how to make sure they have access to good zippers and buttons for creating the right product or, you know, support somebody in terms of 
getting the right priced material. If they don't have access to a wholesaler, they're buying material retail. So the cost goes up. They're not they're not sustainable. So we work on all of those aspects and our goal is to create economic sustainability for these artisan communities. That's awesome. So I want to ask you, you know, you guys are in Texas. You have folks, oh, you know, these 40 artisans uh, groups over in India. Um, when you embark on a journey like that, challenges can arise that maybe no one's warned you about. So for a fair trade organization, such challenges can arise through cultural differences or across vast distances. What challenges maybe have you faced on your journey that took you by surprise? And how did you tackle those? So many, so many, Chris. Um, it's That makes the journey fun. Sometimes frustrating, uh, but sometimes fun. I want to share an example with you. So the way of working in a country like India is very different from the way of working here. You know, here we have very separate work and personal life. You know, we work eight to five and then, you know, work is off and then, then we are a different entity. In the artisanal world, their social and work life is very intermingled. Like they are working from home, their family is involved in the work. All of our women artisans, they have to take care of their household, take care of the children, take care of the family. So for them, they can only work in between these personal chores. They can't dedicate eight to four because then guess what? There's nobody to to take care of the family. So it's a very different dynamic. Uh, sometimes women will work four hours. Sometimes when women have more time. Or if there's a festival, everybody's off for a week. Sometimes for even if there's a if there's any marriage in the village, everybody's not working for two weeks, which I'm jealous of. But you know, create challenges. So understanding those differences and making sure that we anticipate it, we are in communication with the artisans and navigate a way of working where the artisans don't feel that they are losing out on their their social well being, but at the same time we get the product on time and in the right quality. Can I ask a little bit about the the certification process? Because I know for the Fair Trade Federation certification, that actually represents a significant amount of work. So kind of what you were talking about there makes me think about how do you focus on setting up that equitable supply chain and also maintaining those to ensure continued compliance, but, you know, also also having um, the communities be able to live their lives and their balance the way they do. So when starting Mater Boomi and setting out on that journey to, to the certification of, of fair trade, where did you even start and maybe what challenges did you face in maintaining that certification? Uh, that's a great question, Chris. So there are several, so there are nine fair trade principles and some of the key ones, one definitely living wage, no child labor, women empowerment, pay on time, also very important, sustainable raw material, also respecting cultural identity. So I think it from the very beginning, because our focus and motivation was to empower artisan communities, our business was set up to support that. For example, um, you know, we always had thought that we'll only work with marginalized communities, communities that are struggling. And when we set out to do that, they our artisans were always very open to, to working with us. We were able to start working with women community because we were looking for women artisans who was not able to, you know, make a sustainable living for their own. And also, you know, making sure that we talk to the community and understand is there child labor involved. We were not doing purchases by sitting here and sending somebody an order over email. We always had clear line of sight. We went to each community. We spoke with the community members. We spoke with the artisans. We spoke with the kids to make sure the parents and the kids were motivated for children to finish their education and they're not engaged in child labor or making sure all the artisans are getting paid a fair wage. We we never worked with an organization where we didn't have clear line of sight or an organization where we thought that there was a profit center in between and the artisans were not being paid fairly. Sustainability is also a really important factor. You know, fated principle requires us to be environmentally conscious. So sometimes we, we want to work with an artisan community that prints beautiful textiles. But before we start working with them, we visit them, we check what what type of dyes are they using? Are they using toxic dyes or are they using non-toxic dyes? And where is the effluent going? So 
we make sure before we start working with the community that their raw materials and their processes are sustainable. And if we find that there is an opportunity to improve, we actually commit to work with them to change the process and and not just stand away and say, till you improve, we don't want to work with you. That's phenomenal. That That's great. So I'm, I'm curious kind of now in a, in a different vein, because you're talking about uh, those producer communities. So from your experience, you know, founding this fair trade company, Mater Bumi, and then also I know you were on the board for a while, the Fair Trade Federation. How have you seen fair trade practices impact both producer communities, but also then consumer communities? And maybe have you observed impacts on producer communities specifically that one might not expect to see? For sure. Huge impact. You know, our goal was to create economic sustainability for, you know, artisans at risk. And we specifically, you know, work with marginalized communities, women. What we didn't realize or understood was that a lot of time when we talk about women empowerment, we think that women empowerment is linked to information that women doesn't know what their right is. And if you if you they're aware, then they can stand up for it. But we realize that that empowerment is not about information, that power empowerment is about feeling the self-confidence to stand up. And when we work with artisans to create economic sustainability, when they feel that they have, especially women, when they are earning their own, they choose where that money can go. They can choose for their girl to go to school or they can choose for, you know, how that money is being used to bring in nutritional food in the house. They actually find their voice. And that voice is what women's empowerment is. It's not about information. It's about the empowerment, the self-confidence is linked to economic sustainability. So though our goal was to start with economic sustainability, what we actually create is self-confidence. So Manish, I really appreciate your time today. And it's been great getting to know you and your story. And I appreciate having you on the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me and, and giving me a chance to share our work and our story uh, with you and, and the Infra team. Next episode, we'll be discussing diversity in the natural foods industry and efforts around making the grocery shelves more representative. Outside of that, have a great rest of your day and uh, thanks for listening. Well, folks, that's it for this episode of The Buyer's Desk. Thanks to Angela for co-hosting, and I appreciate the contributions from Infra staff, Infra members, and Infra vendors for helping to make this episode happen. I appreciate all of you who listened this far, and I hope to see you next month for another episode.